Uh, I want you to open up to Exodus chapter 20. Um, and you're going to hear that for the next couple of weeks throughout the summer. Exodus chapter 20, Exodus chapter 20. Because we're coming to the next part of our Exodus series when the Lord quite literally laid down the law for the Israelites on Mount Sinai. For most of this summer, we'll be solely focused on chapter 20. That place in the story where God gives Moses and the people the Ten Commandments. As you're opening up to Exodus chapter 20, these ten rules are named commandments you may not know only once in Scripture. In actuality, all other references to this part of Scripture, these ten decrees are labeled as what's known as the Decalogue, which means the ten words. The ten words. Over the centuries, as you know, these ten words have provided the moral and legal foundation for not just Israel, but for many other nations. Here in America, we're very prideful in a good way, and very, it's controversial at times when the Ten Commandments are or aren't posted in courthouses, in our schools, in the middle of our town squares. Part of our childhood, for many of us certainly in this room, was committing the Ten Commandments to memory. How many of you had to memorize the Ten Commandments? Raise your hands. All right, excellent. And if you read hearts up, <laughs> how many of you remember the Ten Commandments? Raise your hands. All of them? Okay, because... Stereotypically, the view with the Ten Commandments as we're starting this series is that with the Ten Commandments, we have no problem telling right from wrong. All you need is the Ten Commandments, and you can tell right from wrong. But the reality is, in our day-to-day -day lives, even with the Ten Commandments, we still seem to have trouble telling right from wrong. We confuse the two all the time. Why is that? Well, part of the reason, as I alluded to a second ago, is that most of us think we know these ten words by heart. But we don't. USA Today, a couple of years ago, uh, in 2007, put out an article, I think when the animated version of the Ten Commandments came out, that listed that 60% of Americans can't name at least five of the Ten Commandments. At least five. But they can tell you how to order a Whopper at Burger King. That was part of the article. I think part of the reason is we think we know these ten words, but we don't. And another part of the reason is that God's top ten list is not as simple as it looks or as it sounds. There's an amazing depth and broad application to these ten words that God gives us. It's more than just a list of don'ts. It's not, as many of us have internalized, consciously or unconsciously, the Ten Commandments are not a form of enslavement, of restriction. The list of the don'ts, the don'ts is meant to be a protection, but at the same time, it's also to be understood as a list of do's. It's a means of exodus. That's why it's part of the story. It's part of our freedom. The order and structure that these ten words provide frees us rather than restricts us. You remember when we started, when we got to Mount Sinai, I tried to give this context, this lens for understanding what's happening here as a, a bride and a bridegroom. This is a wedding gift. The ten words are a wedding gift, a blessing for the Israelites so that they would know that they're free. Yet not only know that they're free, but know how to use their freedom, and therefore how to keep it. The Ten Commandments are not just about conviction. And for many of us, when we hear the law, especially in the Lutheran tradition, we hear it in terms of conviction. But properly understood, the Ten Commandments are about conviction that leads to transformation. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So we need to see these more than a holy to-do list. 
Because if that's all we see the Ten Commandments as, a holy to-do list, we distort our perception of God. And we negatively impact how we approach ourselves and others. Conviction that leads to transformation. It's about wholeness. Another way as we continue through this series, I want you to, I'm giving you some lenses to think about these ten words with. It's not just about an external application, it's about internal application. It's about wholeness. The law, as we know as Lutherans, drives us to grace. But the law driving us to grace doesn't mean that we give up. It doesn't mean that we do nothing. Jesus also said that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Jesus came to bring the law back into its integrity, not to get do away with it, but to fulfill it. These ten words, beloved, are a part of a covenant, a relationship. And as we know in our day-to-day relationships, the most important ones we have and the ones that we are building, relationships are about conduct. Relationships are built on what we do, how we act. Conduct matters. Jesus fulfills the integrity of the law so that through grace, the law can be lived out in our lives. Because God knows. God created us this way that what we do has the power to change who we are. And so the law is a gift Not simply to drive us to grace, but through grace to enable us to become who we are. Grace empowers us to seek and do the impossible, to become who we are individually and collectively. And it begins, the Ten Commandments remind us, and Jesus reminds us when he speaks on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. It begins internally and then comes out externally. It's not vice versa. And many of us, in memorizing the Ten Commandments, Um, understood this idea that we follow the Ten Commandments, we memorize them, and we fake it in order to make it, as some have said. But Jesus comes. Grace drives us to the law, and it's not fake it in order to make it. It's being saved in order to be transformed, convicted in order to become who we were always meant to be. There's a great Puritan proverb. Man's law binds the hands only. God's law binds the heart. These ten words do not seek to bind our hands. They seek to bind our hearts. Now, for the, uh, these next couple of weeks during the summer, um, instead of uh, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, we're going to do a responsive reading. We're going to say the commandments, all ten of them, out loud every Sunday in worship. And then we're going to focus on the commandments that we're looking at for that day. So we're going to do that now. And you're going to notice um, right before we start that we're looking at the first two commandments. Now, for those of you who are good cradle Lutherans, you're going to go, wait a second, Pastor, when you see what I put up there. Because the funky thing about Lutherans and Catholics and even our Jewish brothers and sisters, Protestants, we don't number the the, the commandments the same way. That also creates part of the problem. So for the first time in my three years here, I don't, well, many of you will probably give me other examples. I think for the first time in my three years here, I'm going away from Lutheran tradition. I know, I know, I know. Remember grace, I used that word before. And I'm not going to keep the, I'm going to take the, what is normally considered in Lutheran tradition, the first commandment, and make it two. And you'll see the shift later on towards the end. So, what's normally a single commandment for Jews, Catholics, and Lutherans, you're going to see on the screen is two commandments. I beg your indulgence. Let's do this responsive reading together, and then we'll dive in to what we're looking at today. The ten words or commandments are laws that God gave the people of Israel through Moses 
After leading them out of slavery in Egypt, these commandments reveal the Lord's pattern for life. They are our guide for living as God intended. The first four words of the law shape our life with God. The last six words shape our life with each other. This morning, we will remember and declare these Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your mother and father. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. What is the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this commandment mean? Jesus said, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We believe in the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What is the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself an idol. What does this commandment mean? Jesus said, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. We believe that in Christ we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He alone is the image of the visible God, the firstborn over all creation. The first part of the law is this great commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. Amen. So, the first two commandments. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This first commandment is about worshiping the right God. The second commandment, you shall not make for yourself an idol. This second word is about worshiping the right God in the right way. So again, to understand the framework here, the first word is about worshiping the right God. The second word is about worshiping the right God in the right way. The first word instructs us not to worship false gods. The second word instructs us, it guides us against worshiping the true God falsely. Beloved, how we worship is just as important as whom we worship. And that's why in the Jewish, Catholic, and Lutheran traditions, this is often held together as one commandment because it's seen as being so intimately related. Because if these first two commandments are followed, they really are the foundation for the rest. If we understand these, everything else follows. But notice how counterintuitive these first two commandments are. Conventional wisdom and practice back then, in the day in which God was giving these words to Moses and to the people, was that there were all kinds of gods. Gods for every situation, gods for every circumstance. Every nation had its own deities even. I mean, it was part of being a nation. Who were your gods? Most people worshipped more than one god without seeing it as any kind of problem. The Israelites for centuries had existed in the Egyptian empire where that was clearly the practice. And I would venture to say, and we'll come back to this later, that that kind of pluralism has always been fashionable and still is today. 
And yet here, God does something counterintuitive. God does something countercultural then, and I would argue still today now, God claims exclusivity. Not very politically, not very politically correct. Not very tolerant. Kind of hard to swallow. I am the Lord your God. Who does this God think he is? One of the things that I think we need to just step back and realize, because oftentimes as, as believers, as Christians, we get very, very fired up. Yes, preach it, pastor. Slam it home for all those pagans out there. These words, these ten words were intended, were given to believers. God isn't speaking to the world here, which isn't to say this doesn't apply to the world. God is speaking primarily to those who believe in him already. It's important we understand that. So the primary audience here is not all those people out there who don't know any better. Not all those people out there who all their life they've grown up with many different gods. God is speaking primarily to us, to we who believe, to those who have been freed like the Israelites. And that's the basis for the exclusivity. Who does this God think he is? He tells us who he thinks he is. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. Out of the house of slavery. The exodus is something God did for Israel. Other places in the Psalms and elsewhere, God will say it's like the birth of a child. It's like giving birth to a child. I fathered you. You were a people in bondage. There was very little you could do. There's very little you did do other than watch and receive the freedom that Yahweh accomplished for you, that I accomplished for you. Very much in our own circumstance of being birthed. We had no part of that. We simply were delivered. We came into the world, not realizing until our mother reminds us of all the things she went through. <laughs> God is saying, I fathered you. I adopted you. It goes all the way back to Abraham, not even Egypt. I adopted you. Therefore, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Since it's Father's Day, if you want three simple ways of understanding what God's saying here, it's kind of a modern phrase. It's fallen a little out of fashion. God's basically saying, who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? I'm your daddy. I'm the one who birthed you. Therefore, I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. Therefore, I am your only God. I ex claim exclusivity. And God will go on and say, for I am a jealous God. And for some of us, I, I hope that that makes us kind of step back, because that's not normally a word we'd associate with God, yet biblically, God comes back to it all, all the time. I'm a jealous God. And I think if we're unfamiliar with God referring to himself as being jealous, we need to kind of contextualize that a little bit, because there's, a couple, there's two different kinds of jealousy. The kind of jealousy that comes to our mind probably initially when we hear God say, I'm a jealous God, is that jealousy that we associate with envy. There's that kind of jealousy that has to do with um, envy or insecurity. It's sort of a possessive desire. You know, when, when someone's jealous, a boyfriend for his girlfriend or a, a wife for her husband, it's this idea of being insecure or envious, almost to a point of paranoia. No one can have you but me. No one else. And while this may sound attractive for some of us, this isn't Yahweh's nature. God's not envious or paranoid or overly possessive. The Lord, you notice in, this, in, in giving these ten words, isn't interested so much in denying the existence of other gods. 
Because God's already made this claim by dethroning the gods of Egypt. What's kind of packaged into, I'm the Lord your God who rescued you from the house of slavery is, remember all those other gods? Where are they now? Yahweh's point is that Israel is not to elevate or recognize as God anything or anyone other than the Lord. Because after all, it was the Lord who proved he was their God by freeing them, by saving them. God is saying, I'm your father, I'm your daddy, but God is also saying we're in a relationship. And so what's being spoken of here is another kind of jealousy. The kind of jealousy that the Bible associates with God is the kind of jealousy that's uh, born of commitment. Not of paranoia, but of commitment. Born not of insecurity, but of great passion. Born not of envy, but of intense, caring devotion. Probably a better word, maybe for us, because of how we understand the word jealousy, would be to say that God is a zealous God. Zeal. Think of it rather than an insecure boyfriend. Think of it instead as a father protecting his child. A father who wants the best for his child. I can say this to this service because my daughter's not here, but I'm going to be jealous. I am jealous for my daughter. I'm not jealous because I'm envious or I'm paranoid or I'm insecure. I'm jealous because as her father, I want the best for her. So any boy who dares to want to date my daughter <laughs> better have her best interests in mind. Any boy who dares to want to be with my daughter in any way, shape, or form, or even to speak to her better appreciate, respect who she is. And this is what God means when God says he is a jealous God. He is like a father protecting his child, wanting the best. It's zealousy instead of jealousy, if you will. It's this sense of accountability and responsibility. In other words, this God loves us for who we truly are. And isn't that what we want? Isn't that the kind of of jealousy that we want in a relationship, whether it's our family or from our spouse. We want the kind of jealousy that loves us for who we are. We don't want, and if anything, we are often enslaved by the kind of jealousy that only loves us for who we're supposed to be, for who others want us to be, for who we are when we look or act a certain way. God says, I don't love you like that. I am a jealous God because I know who you are. I fathered you and I want the best for you. And any other God is not going to give you or bring out your best. Therefore, no other God can come before me. Jesus puts it a different way. Jesus says the, the danger here, the reason why God is so exclusive, why God is so zealous or jealous, is because we are prone to divided loyalties. There are many, many theologians through the ages who have said that because of sin, the human heart is a factory for making idols. We are so, it's so easy for us to divide our loyalties. Jesus said it in terms of probably our biggest, our biggest distraction of all. When he put it out there, it just basically said, you cannot love God and mammon. You cannot love both God and mammon. Mammon being money, mammon being stuff, mammon being possessions, mammon encompassing a whole a number of things, possessions. Jesus said, you cannot love both. Because if you try to love both, you will have a divided heart. You will love the one or hate the other. You cannot serve two masters. It's all or nothing. And what Jesus is really driving at is not so much that you'll have a divided heart and it will offend God, though it is an offense to God, not so much that you'll wound God, that God will say, oh, they care about money more than they care about me or stuff. 
What Jesus is driving at, what, again, rather than just a sense of don't, if there's a freedom here, is Jesus is saying when you divide your heart, when you try to serve two masters, when you give even a piece of yourself to something that is not truly your master, that is not truly God, what will happen is you will lose yourself. You will divide yourself. That love-hate relationship, you'll love one and hate the other, will ultimately become transposed onto you. You will love part of yourself and hate the other part of yourself. Or as putting it another way, you will become what you worship. What we worship very much shapes, ultimately shapes who we are, how we see ourselves. We become what we worship. So if we have a divided heart, our identity is divided. If we have a divided loyalty, our worth is divided. If we have a divided focus, our destiny, our sense of direction is divided. What we worship informs all of these things. Think about one of the greatest stories that Jesus ever told, the parable of the prodigal son. Think of the prodigal son's trajectory. The prodigal son decides that he wants it all. And he ends up getting it all. And at the end of the day, he ends up worshiping what? Before he goes home to his father. Anyone remember? Pigs. They eat better than I do. So he gets down on all fours and he becomes a pig. Because that's as good as it gets. Because that's what he's worshiping. And then all of a sudden he gets a brilliant idea. You know what? I can step up in the world. I'm going to go home and I'm going to serve my father. And I'm going to become his servant. And in that moment of insight, we experience what we talked about earlier. The zealous nature, the jealous nature of the father, because the son comes back, as you remember, all ready to apologize, to grovel. And this is the jealousy of God. This is the zealous nature of our God. Seen in this story where the father runs out, grabs his son, and reverses his self-image and says, no, this is not who you are. You are not a pig. You are not a servant. You are my son. Kill the fatted calf. Put the robe on. Put the rings on his finger. You are alive. That is the kind of God we worship. That is why this God says, no one else before me, because anyone else before me will get in the way of how I see you and how I want you to see yourself. Accept no substitutes. It's not just about false gods, these two commandments held together. It's not just about, in terms of making idols, about false gods. It's also, this God wants us to understand, about making this God, making Yahweh, to be less than the God that he is. We think of idolatry in terms of making, of, of making other things, but God says, don't make anything into the form of an idol, because really, ultimately, what that's trying to do is in some way make God into that idol. And to try to make the image of the Lord, to try to image God, to try to make God something small, something that I can lift up and show you, is to reduce God to a human work. To reduce God to a product of human imagination and design. And when those who don't believe in God accuse us of such things, we ought to look inward and see how are we proclaiming, how are we allowing this God to be revealed. Because our tendency is often to make God smaller rather than bigger. We are tempted again and again to live a lie, to make a God of our own making, to, God, to make God less than he is. And when we make God less than he is, God is saying, we abandon this God. When we try to bring God down to a size that we can manipulate and control, we have let go of this God and we have created an idol. 
What Yahweh is declaring to Israel, what Yahweh is declaring to us is that he's irreducible. That really every Sunday when we gather together, whatever our liturgy is, whatever songs we sing, whatever we try to do, this is barely scratching the surface. Beloved, that's why I pushed, I've pushed you and I get pushed too. So it's not just you in terms of how we worship. We have got to continually change how we worship because we are easily set in our ways that this is the only way we can worship. And the next thing you know, unconsciously, you can't worship God unless it's this way. And what God wants to say is the minute that you put that in a sentence, the minute that you put parameters on how you may approach me or who I am, you have lost me. And so to, again, touch a, a sensitive subject for this service, if it can only be communion a certain way, if it's not communion unless it's wine, if it's not communion if it's not those cardboard horrible tasting wafers, if it's not communion because it's not in a gold chalice, if it's not worship unless the choir is singing, if it's not church unless we're in this building, we are on the road of making God smaller. And God is continually pushing us so that we don't reduce this God. God continually pushes Israel because God can't be limited to one image or form. He's beyond manipulation, beyond possession. And if you want to take it outside the context of worship, if you really want to get shaken up a little bit, just to see how easy it is to do, close your eyes and how do you picture God? I asked this of the confirmation students, and some of the confirmation students pictured the guy that's on the front of our bulletin cover, the old man with the beard. Some of you are picturing Jesus right now. But here's a good one. What did Jesus look like? Well, he had the flowing hair and the piercing eyes. Good-looking guy. Does anyone have the original photograph? How easy it is for us to go, well, but that's, that's, but that's Jesus. Pastor Chris, let's, let's not go here. That's Jesus. It's so easy for us to recreate, to reduce God. And yet if God is truly God, then God is beyond, as he says to Israel, being reduced. He cannot be manipulated. He's beyond our possession. We can't possess God. God possesses us. This commandment reminds us that instead of fixating on trying to get our arms around God to remember that God puts his arms around us, that instead of trying to image God to remember that we are created in the image of God, and that being created in the image of God, perhaps the most defining characteristic of this God is the mystery of this God, that this God is beyond comprehension, that this God is slippery, that all we have is a reflection. That this God is always about us taking another, deeper, longer look. Now again, no idols seems really counterintuitive because, uh, you know, what you may be asking yourself right now is, well, but how do we worship if we can't have something? If we can't visualize? Because, I mean, again, there's an element about how we've decorated this in terms of different things that we have that help us, guiding us in worship. And in the church, the history of the church, we've had many, many vicious arguments about this. You know, taking this idea that we're not to create any image of God very, very seriously that in our Protestant tradition, you know, the, again, the arts have suffered because we've often created very, very sterile environments, unlike our Orthodox or Catholic brothers and sisters. And yet God's not saying that we can't create aids to worship. God created the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? A giant aid to worship. God doesn't have a problem with us envisioning something, hence God incarnates himself in Jesus Christ. But we just declared he is the image of the invisible God. The issue for us is that we have to walk a fine line. 
We have to walk a fine line between aids or pointers to our worship and confusing the means for the end, missing the forest for the trees. And so as we come together, it's not that we can't have communion a certain way that's distinctively Lutheran, or we can't engage in worship with a certain style of music. All of those things are the richness of the diversity of the body. But the problem becomes when in those conversations, we draw a line in the sand and say, it's this way and only this way. Because all of a sudden, what we need to realize is we're not worshiping the God that these things point to. We're worshiping these things as gods. I'm going to confess a little something, and then I'll move on, and I'm, I may get some flack for this. But, you know, in our school at, at Grace, I had never heard this before, and I, I'm sure there are counterarguments, but I get very, very unnerved every time the kids do the Bible pledge. Um, because more and more, I, I like the, the words are, are, I can go with, but... We don't even worship this book. And yet many Christians worship this book. We worship the author of this book. We worship what these words point to, but we don't worship this book. Yet for many Christians today, they engage in what's known as Bible-olatry. And we have to, this is probably, probably the most important example of, did God say, here's this book, worship it? Or did God say, here's this book, worship me? Something to think about. Because again, this is where this commandment gets inside us and challenges us of how we look at things. We don't want to miss the forest for the trees, is what God is saying. We don't want to confuse the means for the end. Think about how many, some of you grew up in this generation, how many people lived and died and based their salvation on the King James translation? If it ain't King James, baby, it ain't real. And now today, oh, that translation, I wouldn't read that translation if you paid me. You are not near the living God if you are not reading the King James. And if it's the new King James, well, think about that. Think about that. Think about these kind of statements and think about what they mean. Because the reality is, beloved, (laughs) we have gods, rival gods. We have idols in our life. Why? Why do we still have them even though we have the Ten Commandments? I said something earlier that the presumption is if we have the Ten Commandments, then we should know right from wrong. Why do we confuse the two? Why do we still have idols? Why do we put other things before God? And again, we're talking about believers here. We're not talking about outsiders. Why do we, who have received from this God, who God has revealed himself to, why are we so prone to idolatry? I mean, this makes sense to people out there, but for us, we know, we've seen, we've experienced. Why? Because, beloved, even though we have experienced, we have seen, we have been encountered by this living God like the Israelites, we are no different than every other human being in this world. Things, causes, relationships will always vie for our ultimate concern. There are always things pulling for our highest attachment. There are always things seeking our deepest feelings. There are always things demanding our continual focus and attention. And it's easy to become neglectful or forgetful. It is easy, and that is why God is so exclusive and so jealous. Don't take your eyes off of me. Don't step away from me, because you will get into trouble. And we can all relate to this when we had young children. Didn't we say the same thing to our young children? Hold my hand. Hold my hand. You cannot let go of my hand. Why? Because if they do, they get into trouble. You look over, and your kid's about to cross into the street where there's traffic. You look over and your kid's going and grabbing something, a knife, and about to do something. Hold my hand. And 
somewhere along the way, we stop holding our parent's hand. And that's probably one of the hardest experiences for us as a parent. Well, it's even harder for God because God says never let go. God says never let go. So sometimes the problem, the gods and idols come into our life because we let go of God's hand. We are forgetful. We are neglectful. We wander, just like our, when we were when we were little kids. What's that? Ooh, that looks good. And we let go. But other times in our relationship with God, we get stuck. We hit a wall. It's almost, again, back to that parenting analogy. You reach that place where maybe you're not holding your parents' hand, but you're always at home. You like to be around your family. And then all of a sudden you reach that place, usually around adolescence. That's why I asked you to pray for me, by the way. Where as a child you start to go... This is cramping my style. Yeah, I love you and all, but I got other things to do, more important places to be. Or, boy, you're, you just are, exist, don't you, just to make my life a bummer. You just exist to make me suffer, don't you? And so any opportunity I can to get out of here, I'm leaving. Any excuse I can, I'm going to leave. And that happens in our relationship with God, too. I got other things to do. You just exist to make my life a bummer, don't you? And so we hit a wall, we get stuck with this God, and we look for something, something else. And, and what we don't realize until much later in life, unfortunately, for most of us, is something that many of our greatest theologians have said, that the thing that we need, what we're really wrestling with, is something that God has hardwired us with. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century theologian and mathematician, famously said that there is a God-shaped hole inside every person. St. Augustine said it this way, our hearts are restless until we rest in God. The world is full of God substitutes. The world is full of God additives, God supplements. And so when we feel this nagging in the midst of our wanderlust, we fill it with all kinds of things. We massage that restlessness with little things, good things. That's the thing about idolatry that's so insidious. You know, we think idolatry, we think it's, you know, these huge, incredibly tempting things, and it's usually the little things, the little gods in our lives that we gradually, unintentionally elevate above God. Think about examples that abound in our own lives. All of us, our careers, our jobs, become little gods in our lives. We climb, as we like to say, the corporate ladder of success. The corporate ladder of success. You've arrived. We fixate on our triumphs and our disappointments, our victories and our failures. That becomes the benchmark of who we are. And that's why for so many of us, when we retire, we are, the, the, the floor drops out. Who are we? What do we do? What do we do now that we don't, we're not doing this job? What do we do now that we're not this title in the company that we worked for? Our careers and our jobs can become Idols in our lives, little gods, our hobbies. I mean, did anyone, anyone watch hockey? I mean, Vancouver lost the Stanley Cup and people were rioting, destroying cars, destroying their own city. And okay, some of you could say some of them were drunk. Fine. They came to the game drunk. I mean, these are teams, and we've seen this again and again. These are sports teams, but people become so manic about their hobbies, their teams, that literally they're depressed for weeks. Think about that. It ruined my life. Or a cause, social justice within the church. We're very much about causes. We want to do things to make the world a better place. But apart from God, social justice can become an idol. Because all of a sudden, the next thing we know, we start saying something stupid like, well, God's a Republican. <laughs> or God's a Democrat. 
Really? Really? Again, think about how easily we can lift things up. Our family members, our spouses, our common messiahs, let me tell you from pastoral counseling, how many of us have regrets in our lives, things we didn't do, and we pour that on our kids. You've got to be, you've got to do all the things that I didn't get to do. I'm doing it for you. Really? I'm doing it for you. Really? I'm doing it for me. I want you to get all the chances I didn't get. I want you to accomplish all the things that I didn't accomplish. Or spouses. I'll tell you, premarital counseling, is, and I know it's going in a bad direction, when a couple walks in and one person says about the other person, yeah, you know what, I'm going to make him into a really great husband. <laughs> or, you know, she'll be a great wife with a little work. You're laughing. You're laughing, but there are couples that exist this way. Or, or one of the, the, the greatest, most romantic lines in a movie that is idolatry in its most simplistic form. The movie, not recommending it, is Jerry Maguire. This couple finally realizes they love each other, and the guy comes in in this moment and says, you complete me. You complete me. And every woman's like, oh, I wish a man would say that to me. No, you don't. No, you don't. No one in a relationship wants to be another person's Messiah. No one can handle that. The only Messiah we have is Jesus Christ. If you expect the person in your marriage, in your family, one of your kids to save you, to redeem you, you are putting on them the burden of idolatry. And yet it is so easy to do. You know, and when we do this, it feels great at first. Because it's good. It's good little things. But when we elevate these things to a level that they cannot hold, when we, we, what begins to happen is we now think, wait, we can control things. We now can get measurable results. We can, we can figure out whether or not our spouse really loves us. We can figure out whether our kid's really a success. We can figure out whether, where we are on the corporate ladder. But the problem is when we're in control, when we are all about these measurable results, we've let go of God again. And what happens is, and it, does, it takes a while for some of us to realize this, what we're really creating is not the promises of Scripture, but self-fulfilling prophecies. And we turn around in life and we're running in circles. We put our power, our hope in the power of something. And then once we get it, nothing changes in our lives. I got married so that my life would get better. But they didn't make me into a better person. We were having trouble in our marriage, so we had kids because that was going to save us. But we're not happier as a couple. I had a son, so my son could do all the things that I wanted to do, all the things I couldn't do, but now he doesn't want to do those things. Or he doesn't do them well. We put our hope in the power of something other than God, and we get it, and nothing changes. Because these little gods of our own making can't meet the level of satisfaction and fulfillment we require. They always disappoint us. And if we don't catch it the first time, if we're like most people, we simply jump from one thing to another, from one relationship to another, trying to find ourselves, trying to find our significance and our worth, trying to find where we can be free and fulfilled. Isn't that what's going to happen to Israel? Isn't that why God gets so frustrated in his jealousy? Israel will jump from nation to nation, from thing to thing, and God will say, it begins with Israel saying, we need a king, and God will say, I am your king. Why do you need a king? And then they'll say, we need this, we need that. And God will say, you have everything you need. And Israel will implode. And then Israel will say, we need a Messiah. And God will say, 
It's already coming. He's already coming. And then Israel will say, crucify that Messiah. Beloved, when we put our hope, when we jump from one thing to another, putting that burden, we don't find peace. We only find frustration. We only have recurring worries in our lives. Our health suffers. Our life is in balance. We keep repeating the same tapes. If this describes your life, if your health is suffering, if your life seems in balance, if the same tapes keep running in your head, may I politely and humbly suggest that you have got some little gods in your life that need to be dethroned. And God needs to be put first. If you're sitting here and you know what, most of your relationships are just routines. You just show up. You know what to say. You know what you do. But they're just routines. If you're here this morning, and let me tell you, for many of us who are raised in a Christian home, it is, this is one of the quickest roads, ironically, into idolatry. Is because you grew up with this God all your life, you become way too familiar. And if you're here this morning and you knew more about religion than you do a relationship, may I suggest that you've got some little gods in your Christian upbringing. If we're just going through the motions, we're not living, we're not free, we're enslaved, we're dying. And that's why this God says, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's why this God says, don't create anything that in any way tries to, to, to reduce or image me because I am way bigger than anything you can imagine. I have way more potential. There's way more for me that you, for you to find out about than you can possibly know. I think in many ways the danger in our world today is not that we don't have false gods and idols. The danger is that we have so many more of them, we don't recognize them. I think the danger is we become so good at hiding them. Back in the day, at least they had names. We are so good at hiding them, we don't even know where they are. But God does. So, beloved, I ask you this morning, do you recognize the potential idols in your life? Some questions for reflection. And answer them honestly between you and God. Who do you love? Who do you love? What do you desire? And those are benign questions until you get to the third. Who do you love? What do you desire? And in love and desire, what or who is truly important, ultimate for you? What is ultimate for you? If your answer isn't Jesus Christ, I don't, and I say this knowing my own vulnerability to this, be it your spouse, be it your son, your mom, be it your job, you have taken God's blessing and turned it into a curse in your life. It's become an idol. Who do you trust? Ask yourself, when the rubber meets the road, who do you trust? Where do you place your trust? Who or what do you place your faith in? It's easy to talk about it in isolation, but I mean it when the chips are down, when things happen, where do you go? Who do you put your trust in? We can talk all about what we will do. What do you do in those moments of testing? Martin Luther said, whatever one's heart clings and relies on, that is their God. What do you cling and rely on? God says, no gods before me. And sometimes we think, well, if no gods before me, then if we do a little, have some people behind God's back, that's fine. But go back to the marriage analogy. Think about our marriages. There is no marriage unless there's commitment. And with this God, there is no relationship unless there's commitment. God is wholly committed to us. He wants us to be wholly committed to him. We know this in our lives. The power of one's yes is only as strong as the force and commitment of one's no. 
So I ask you, where in your life are you saying no? We have to leave behind the idols that deceive us, beloved. We have to name them and cast them with their false promises out of our lives. We have to do it now because there'll always be just one more. There'll always be just one more. There'll always be just one more thing to buy. One more purchase to make us happy. There'll always be just one more pill, one more diet, one more program, one more book to make us feel better about ourselves. There'll always be just one more promotion, one more career jump to secure or improve our position. There'll always be just one more activity, one more opportunity for our kids to ensure that they get into a good college and have a successful life. There's always just one more of everything but we don't need just one more. We only need the living God in Christ because the rest are idols, false gods that we have, many of us have served for years, but they have never made us free. These just one mores promise us a shortcut to happiness, but they always and again just bring us back to Egypt. Beloved, who brought us out of Egypt? Who died for our sins? Through whom did we experience God's forgiveness? Who gave us new life? Our life and our practice should be consistent with the answers to these questions. Exodus only happens when we realize our enslavement and our prisons. When all we can do is cry out to God and watch and wait and follow. Simply put, freedom comes. And that's what God is about. The book is Exodus. Freedom comes not because we find something to help us cope with how things are. That's the bar that many of us try to hit. Freedom comes not when we find something to help us cope with how things are. Freedom through this God only comes when we trust this God to lead us to how things can and will be. No other God. God claims first place. It's only when we give our lives to this God and Jesus Christ, this uncompromised allegiance and submission to this jealous, zealous, committed God that we can get and experience all of those things that we are so often insecure about. Our careers, our finances, our homes, our families, our sense of worth, identity, safety, and control, our sense of being the church. Beloved, this God wants our heart. He wants it and wants no one else to have it. Let us give it with reckless abandon. Will you pray with me? Gracious Lord, you are indeed the God who rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And you are indeed the God who rescued us from slavery to sin and death. Thank you for saving us. You know, Lord, that no other God in our lives displaces you. But we confess that there are times when our loyalties are split when we worship other gods. There are times when we find it hard to surrender everything to you. We want to hang on. We want to hang on to the, these things that promise us safety and control Forgive us, Lord, when we allow other gods into our presence. Help us by your grace and by your spirit to have no other God but you. 
May we, in that covenant relationship that you began with us, be exclusive in every way. May we put our full trust in you and in you alone. May we live for you each moment of our days, no matter what we're doing. Help us, dear Lord, to live our lives in response to all that you've done for us. Help us to hold your hand and never let go. May we be so caught up in your grace, God, so caught up that we're drawn to give you all that we are and all that we have all of the time. We ask this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.